This is Brian Evanson, author of Immobility, and you are listening to Booked. tell you about the books they're reading i'm rob olson and i'm livia snedden but this week it's not two guys it's not even about the books we're reading we're gonna have three people on rob maybe three of us no actually uh four get, get, get work on that math it's uh four four of us you remember last time we had four people on uh the zombie extravaganza spectacular that is correct yeah. so it's been a year and a half since we've uh, tried to tackle a, a monster episode with four people but we did it again and this time we're doing it with the This Is Horror podcast. Yeah, you remember when uh, we were talking about Lords of Salem, the movie, and I said that we need to just obligate them to doing a crossover with us without telling them? This it, is what we need to do all yeah, the time. It works. This works, this works brilliantly. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the next time we read, like, uh, you know, like yeah. someone huge. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Stephen King. Yeah. Well, it's Stephen King needs to come on our podcast. Yeah. Uh, but, and then he's going to catch wind of it and be like, well, I guess I'm going on that podcast. Exactly. All right. So this is going to be kind of a longer episode because there are four of us here. So without further ado, let's bring you the booked slash This Is Horror crossover episode. Welcome to the This Is Horror and Booked podcast. We're going to be reviewing Lords of Salem today. I'm Michael Wilson. I'm joined with my co-host, John Costello. Hello there. And... I'm joined with my overseas booked compadres, Livius. Hi, Livius. <laughs> Hi, <say>? hello. <laughs> and Rob. How's it going? Good. So we thought to kick off the show, it would be a good idea to talk through a kind of past experience with Rob Zombie movies and Rob Zombie's back catalogue, his music, and yeah, to get, give a kind of flavour as to where we're all coming from. Okay, well I'll kick that one off then, because my previous example of Rob Zombie's movies stretches to half an hour of House of a Thousand Corpses, and I'm not absolutely sure I've ever heard a note of his music. <laughs> well, you know, we, we can remedy that later. <laughs> You're not keen. <laughs> uh, so in terms of my experience, it's pretty much the opposite of John's. I've I've seen all of his films. Uh, I would say The Devil's Rejects is by far the strongest of the lot. And the Halloween remakes, I don't really want to go there. I wasn't. I wasn't a fan. I didn't think he did them any justice, and I didn't really think you know, there was anything that was added to horror cinema as a result of them. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses was good as well. I found that to be a very fun throwback to like 80s horror films. And then I saw his, like, his cartoon, his animated film. It was, it was something like El Super Beastie. I I don't even know what to say on that. That was just like some mental trip. <laughs> um, and in terms of 
his music. I'm a big Rob Zombie fan. Seen him live. Uh, and yeah, in, enjoyed the majority of his musical output. Educated Horses was the weakest of the lot with a title to match. So, <laughs> Rob and Livius. Um, I'm going to echo what you said about The Devil's Rejects. Um, it's actually probably one of my top 10 favorite movies. Um, really love that. House of a Thousand Corpses was fantastic, too. Um, I watched the first Halloween, and I, I actually I think I fell asleep through a good portion of it. So, yeah, it, it did nothing for horror cinema or the legacy of uh, Michael Myers. Um, but it did have Sherry Moon Zombie in it, which is always a plus. So... Uh, as far as his music goes, uh, yeah, I like the stuff I've heard. You know, the singles. I'm I'm not much of a Rob Zombie fan, but uh, you know, the stuff I've heard, you know, on the radio, the commercial music has has been good as far as I'm concerned. All right, I guess I'm cleaning up here. Uh, <clears throat> as far as Rob Zombie movies go, uh, I've only seen House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects, uh, and loved them both, uh, but. As far as the Halloween movies, I hadn't seen the originals, uh, so uh, even if I watched Rob Zombie's uh, reimagining or whatever, I, I wouldn't have it. Wouldn't have been damaged, you know. It wouldn't have damaged any kind of original image, so that's kind of a wash there. Um, but I really, really loved both House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects. Obviously, Rejects is a little bit better, um, a lot better, <laughs> actually. Um, and then as far as his music goes, yeah, uh, even when White Zombie was very new back like 20 years ago, uh, I had a friend who got me into them, and then pretty much I followed the course of all of Rob Zombie's music uh, up to a point, you know, like about 10 years ago, I kind of tapered off, so I kind of focused more on the earlier stuff, but yeah, definitely a fan of what he does, and uh, um, was very excited about knowing that the novelization of Lords of Salem was coming out, because... I mean, books is what we do. Okay, so let's now go forward and talk about the Lords of Salem film. So do either of you want to take the synopsis? No, if only, <laughs> I, had, if only I had it in front of me. <laughs> that, would, that would imply that we had it, yeah, available. I, we were somewhat prepared. Okay, well, the film follows Heidi, who is a radio DJ and former drug user. And she's working at her local radio station with two guys called Herman, Herman Whitey Salvador and Herman Jackson. And whilst at the radio, she receives a vinyl record with the note, A Gift from the Lords. And, well, upon playing that is when the weirdness really starts to kick in. Um... And alongside this, there are flashbacks to the old Salem witch trials. And as the narrative unravels, we, we get to see how these scenes from the past and the present are connected. I think unravels is a good way of putting it. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and I, I, I think that pretty much covers the, the synopsis without getting into spoiler territory, which I'm sure we inevitably will pretty early on. That seems to be <laughs> well, a pattern. <laughs> yeah, for a movie largely free of plot, I think that does it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say I can't that... remember what the book's policy was in Oz. 
is on on expletives. So, I mean, oh, like, uh, you're you're fine with us. I, I'm sure you're going to hear some emotion on this end. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I'll say that the one thing I liked about um, the film in talking about going to the past and seeing the Salem witch trials and then coming to the forward was kind of the back and forth play. Um, what we read in the book was that whole section that took place, you know, during the witch trials was at the beginning and it wasn't really revisited through. I kind of liked the way it was broken up um, through the course of the movie. So, you know, you see kind of what happens then you kind of go to the future, you go back to the past a little bit, you come back to the future. So that was that was played. It was one of the things I liked about the movie. Can you guys believe that Livius just said back to the future? <laughs> Unheard of. He, had, he had to work it in there. Some... He had to. He did it on purpose. We uh, we had a conversation before we started recording, and I had mentioned that I, I'm not much of a film guy that I actually hadn't seen Back to the Future. I'm familiar with it. It's pop culture. <laughs> I, I know what the references are. At least most of them. I think I know most. I guess if I don't know them, then I just think people are. You don't weird. know. Yeah, you don't know if you don't know them. Sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> So one of the things that played well for me, at least, was was kind of the the revisiting the past. Yeah, I mean, I I thought that it served well to break up the action, uh, which we were seeing on the kind of on screen present day, and I thought the way that they worked it in, it, it worked nicely. It was well crafted, I would say. I'm just waiting for John to absolutely <laughs> <laughs> riff into it and. Go, um, go on, John. <laughs> I thought the beginning, the opening sequence, actually gave me to understand that it might have some merit. But um, you know, where where we have the uh, the original hysteria of the witch trials as kind of evidenced in previous texts on the subject, notably Arthur Miller's The Crucible. But um, you know that that was pretty much the high point of the movie for me, the opening scene. And I, I enjoyed the way in, in which the the credits rolled from that you had a very kind of seventies, eighties old school feel. You had the the goat, which I think John might want to discuss later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the representation of Satanism, I guess, is what they were going for. Yeah, also uh, known as a goat. Yep. <laughs> it was a very, <laughs> awkward, very awkward goat. Awkward like goat it just kind it of was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just kind of looked at the camera a little bit. Yeah, it's like here I am being goat-like. What 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 else do you expect me to do? I'm a goat for Christ's sake. Well, then, then when when you know the opening credits started rolling, it reminded me of the House of the Devil. In fact, another throwback to the seventies and eighties. And yeah, I I mean I'm a I'm a big fan of the nostalgic horror films, so I thought this has potential, and it did have potential. Um. And it, I mean, I, I didn't hate the film, <laughs> um, but it, it didn't quite materialize into what I would have hoped it, okay. it was going to become. So, well, that, sorry, go on. I was going to say that actually raises a good question. What did you guys expect when you're going into this movie? Because if we're going to talk about how we didn't, it didn't, may not have met expectations, what were you looking for before you went in and saw it? Well, the great thing was that I didn't really have any expectations having only really seen um, in passing uh, a very short snippet of a Rob Zombie movie before. I kind of knew that it was probably going to be pretty surface driven and that it was going to be loaded with pop culture references. 
Um, I was kind of staggered to the extent at which I feel that I think one of the notes that we've got written down is is imitation really the the sincerest form of flattery, <laughs> because there are so many imitative quotations and general references and specific references in this film. It's kind of difficult to get an identity for the film while you're being bombarded with all this stuff, both visual and situational, in reference to other media texts. And in, in terms of my expectations, I'd seen House of a Thousand Corpses, and I thought we were going to get something else along those lines, which... Uh, yes, there are very much nods towards other classic films, but it it's a very fun, it's a very fast-paced film, um, and it, it doesn't really take itself too seriously. I guess it, it's almost like, I think, the phrase Carnival of the Grotesque would seem... For House of to, a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, to yeah. be apt for the House of a Thousand Corpses feel to it. Um but the one thing that really marked The Lords of Salem as a different film to anything that Zombie has done before is just how how slowly paced it was. I mean, up until the half an hour point, it was pretty restrained in terms of its its horror or its weirdness. I mean, of course, after half an hour, yeah, he, he certainly upped the stakes, as it were. So I think on that half an hour point, it's where Heidi enters room five in the apartment, which is, uh, well, you you don't really know what's going on, but pretty early on you are aware <laughs> that in room five there is some bad shit. Yeah, um, <laughs> much like room 237 in The Shining, which is exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah, and I, well, I think it was... You know, a, a deliberate nod towards of that. Course. I mean, ev every fucking shot was a deliberate nod towards something, <laughs> something wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, which will tie in with John's point, which we haven't got as a note, but I think from earlier it was, does Rob Zombie have an original idea on anything? Or mm. Something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Do you guys think? Um... You know, my expectations, our expectations, I guess my and Rob's are probably a little different because we already knew the, the, you know, the basics of the story. We already knew the whole story from reading the book when we went into it. So we expected they wouldn't veer too far off. And of course, my expectations were that it wouldn't cover every line from the book. But uh, um, I was hoping for, you know, I was hoping for a little more House of a Thousand Corpses than, than you know, what, what we got. I can't specifically say that I've seen many of the movies that you guys have mentioned um, referencing nods towards or, or movies he drew inspiration from. Um, so it, it's hard to say. I like the book well enough that I expect I have very high hopes for the film. And they, they just didn't deliver on those high hopes. Yeah. And and for me, I, I guess having seen House of a Thousand Corpses and even Devil's Rejects, I think that maybe I overprepared myself to be really like freaked out by you know some serious hardcore like horror stuff, like really gruesome things that just didn't really happen. So you know, it's like preparing yourself for like a slap that never comes, you know, a little bit. Yeah, cool. I'd, I'd say that my expectations were were not particularly large, and you know, 
they weren't met, but I didn't really expect them to be, so I might be seen to be a little bit biased against going into the situation, who knows. But, I mean, d despite everything that we've said, despite the fact that it is different to anything he's done, I did feel that it still had that zombie distinct trademark to it. So, I mean, two things in particular. First of all, when they introduced the radio show, you had a very wacky, zany <laughs> kind of feel to it. And it was very old school and I thought, you know, that that is classic Rob Zombie. It in it in fact reminded me of his older white zombie music videos where there's just psychedelic shit all over the place. Um and then linked in with that was right towards the end. I think I can say this without it being a spoiler. Uh but you know, if if you're afraid it might be spoilery, then mute the volume for about 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, that was, yeah, right towards the end, there was just this bizarre sequence of events. There were priests that were masturbating dildos. There was Heidi riding a goat. There were a lot of bright colours and just a, a cameo of weird stuff. And there was a there was a narrative in there which <laughs> we'll get to <laughs> yeah, John is disagreeing <laughs> wow. and making noises <laughs> that there was a thin narrative thread which we'll get to when we discuss the climax um but it it did feel quite like it was a staple together music video and i'm not sure that particular bit was strong enough uh, for, for there to be enough meaning to it um and in fact so i've watched the film twice now and the main reason that i rewatched it yesterday was to to gain clarity on exactly how the film ended because the last 10 minutes <laughs> there's quite a few leaps did you drop a tab then uh, you know, I think maybe that would have assisted things. <laughs> wow. But no. <laughs> the only that. way, the only way I would ever rewatch this movie, or the only reason <laughs> I would ever rewatch this movie, is Sherry Moon Zombie. Because I could watch her eating cereal for like two hours. Like that, I, that just would have. Yeah, I mean, you might as well just rewatch the first few scenes for yeah. the maximum yes. Sherry Moon Zombie enjoyment. Yeah, I think, you know, that long lingering shot of her legs and her ass <laughs> was quite a high point of the movie for me. But, you know, I, I, it's I, kind of a, a very show off way. So Rob Zombie saying, hey, guys, look what I got. So now, now this is a, I, I, I fucking told you before the show, Rob Zombie doesn't talk like that. Yeah, but I think he, he should talk like that. I really think you should talk like that. I, uh... Talks like a, you know, just a <laughs> relatively normal guy. <laughs> I, uh, I saw the movie before Livius, and uh, knowing his uh, affinity for Sherry Moon Zombie, I just texted him the words, uh, Sherry Moon Zombie has ass tan lines. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, we're talking about this jokingly, but to be very serious, Sherry Moon Zombie, I think, was one of the maybe three things I liked in this movie. 
I mean, I liked her throughout her, her delivery. I thought her performance was good. I mean, she's kind of like a spacey former drug addict. And I think she played that pretty well. Yeah. Um, heroin Sherry Moon Zombie was, was seemed dead to rights to me for not having, you know, spent a lot of time in, you know, heroin dens or whatever. But, um, Rob pointed out to me, we were talking about this yesterday or the day before that, um, there's a scene that earlier in the film, she's walking through and she's learning to speak, um, French. Rob is a French. Yeah. It's French. Yeah. And uh, later on, while she's completely stoned out on heroin, she's like <laughs> kind of mumbling into her, you know, her headphones and trying to repeat the French that she's hearing. So, you know, for a great, great scene in the movie that 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 was I thought that was a terrific scene. I thought her delivery was perfect. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the rest of it kind of lacked a lot of stuff. See, now I want to say really quickly, you were talking about that weird montage that happened toward the end with the masturbating priests and everything. And I thought that, like, I personally took that almost entirely the opposite, where um, you've got this movie where it's very slowly paced and you, you know, um, like not a lot is happening. That's very obvious. But then in this little montage that happens toward the end, it basically without even any words tells you really like everything about what the overall plot was is like, you know, you know, essentially these witches, can I spoil? Yeah, I think you should. Yeah. Uh, Essentially these witches were using, I mean, and, and you got a little bits and pieces here and there, but like the, that whole like montage at the end was just revealing fully wide open that, you know, the witches were getting her pregnant so that she could have the devil's baby. And like, it was just super, it was like a big exposition montage. That's what I got from it, at least. Yeah, sure. But while we're in spoiler territory, I think we're kind of... One of the things that I, I'm i terrible, I kind of expect things like plot logic, even in horror cinema. And so I'm kind of looking at all this, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what is the point? I mean, if you're going to bring Satan, what is he going to do? Oh, shit, he doesn't do anything, because, you know, the film ends when he's born, and that's pretty much it. Except that how many times is he born and how many incarnations is he born in? There's that strange thing with all the fucking arms that look like waving painted <laughs> ropes. And then there's that dwarf with the short stunted arms that looks like a refugee from a Dario Argento movie. And then there's the, the thing that the, the little thing that she's cradling to her chest that looks like a reject from the alien creature effects department. And it's like... So what exactly is Satan and how are you? Oh, okay. I'm fucking out of here. I just can't even be, you know, I can't spend any more emotional energy on this because I think that, you know, you've got a million ideas here, but you can't put them all on the screen at the same time and expect it to stack up. Um, John, we don't want you to hold back. We want you to tell us <laughs> yeah. how you felt about this. I sense that you're holding back a little bit. I, I, I am. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of working with two consummate professionals and I just want to be more restrained than I normally am. I'm imagining your hands just shaking now as you're saying <laughs> like so passionate about it. Oh, that I wasn't the worst facet of the movie for me at all. That was, I'm just getting started. That's your favourite scene, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> Wow, uh, I um I didn't get the montage at the end. I, I just didn't get it. The the priests with the dildos and the the you know she's riding the 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 goat and I like I, I mean I got the the symbology of it. It it just didn't do anything for me. I mean I'm I'm used to having a movie with, I guess a more traditional climax. You know, yeah. there's some action. There's you're going to stop something or you're going to fail to stop something, which can be so much more interesting, which is what what, you know, basically happened in this movie. But telling it in the the music video style, 
um, was a little jarring for me. I mean, I wasn't a fan of the movie up until that point, but yeah, it, it really lost me going into the final you know, five minute montage scene. You know, I don't. I don't think that it's that John disliked it because it was weird or a bit abstract. I mean, this is. I mean, John has written books on Cronenberg and Lynch for fuck's sake. So, you know, we don't want Rob. <laughs> I'm now if Rob Zombie can find a positive, <laughs> putting him down again. It's like they don't think, oh well, he he didn't get it. It's like no, John did get it, and it didn't stack up. Yeah, I have a question. I have a question for for yeah. Michael and John more specifically. Um, you guys are obviously horror buffs. You know, we're talking about, or most of you guys are talking about, um, you know, Dario Argento and other movies. This reminded you of so many of them. I'd never even heard of. I'm embarrassed to say. Um, is there an original horror thought? I mean, I know, I, and I watch all the the moderns. You know, like Sinister, and I see Sinister, and it reminds me of three other, you know, more recent films, and it seems like. It's really hard to do an original idea. Do you guys come across horror movies where you don't see the nod to, you know, intentional or not for other films? Well, horror is one of those self-reflexive genres, probably more than any other. So part of the fascination for its diehard fans seems to be how many references and quotations you can put into other texts from within the genre. Um I don't really see much originality in horror movies, but then again, you know, most of the ideas that you can come out with have been come out with, and the ways in which you execute those ideas have all been seen and done before. The thing that I kind of take most exception to about Lords of Salem is that, you know, the entire framework and the entire fabric of the movie is based upon absolutely deliberate nods and quotations and references to other texts so there's rosemary's baby there's the shining you know he loves his symmetrical kubrick tracking shots and kubrick would be spinning in his grave to think that he was being imitated by rob zombie <laughs> you know, there, there are you know all the cast members that he's used so he's used judy Geeson from inseminoid now that inseminoid was a very low budget british horror movie of it was an alien ripoff a horror science fiction movie Judy Geeson was a TV sitcom actress who kind of uh, was plucked to star in this movie because they couldn't afford any actual actors. And then here she is in this as a kind of nod to Inseminoid, and it's this revisionist view of history that's like, we had to sit through the shit back in the day, and it was, believe me, it wasn't good then, and so it still isn't any good now just because you happen to want to quote it. He's got Dee Wallace from E.T. He's got Meg Foster from They Live. He's got... Um, Patricia Quinn from Rocky Horror Picture Show he's got Ken Faree from Dawn of the Dead and I know he's used him before in his other films but all of this is just a kind of 13 year old boy's mentality of what horror should be about and he's just deploying all of these things to have this kind of fan base going oh geez isn't that cool isn't that really cool and no it's not fucking cool <laughs> it's just you get some ideas and populate it with some other people and don't riff on movies indefinitely until you can actually say well i know actually what makes a movie tick i know what constitutes a plot i know how narrative works because he doesn't seem to appear to me to know any of these things wow <laughs> that, that indeed answered my question thank you <laughs> no worries so this is me just playing devil's advocate and definitely not arguing with you but uh so for people let's say a younger generation who maybe 
aren't as familiar with every reference you just gave or even some of them is there any room for this being kind of an homage to that era that like might give people a starting point to looking at some of the older stuff or is that just not a possibility <laughs> briefly before i let michael go on this one. <laughs> um for me ha- doing homage in and of itself is not a problem as long as you do it much better than this <laughs> okay fair enough you know i i did enjoy the film like i didn't enjoy it as much as other horror films that I've seen recently, but I I quite liked all the nods towards other classic horrors. Um, And I I mean, one of the notes that I've got is just to do with the witches, and I wondered, was it a problem that it was so painfully obvious that the landlord was going to be one of the witches and then her sisters were, or whether that was kind of part of its charm? No, it was a problem because it was lazy. <laughs> there you go, then. Mm. There is an answer. <laughs> in, the, in the same way that Heidi... Plot spoiler coming up. Heidi is revealed to be a descendant of the Hawthorne guy who was the uh, chief prosecutor in the Salem witch trial. It's like, well, anybody who didn't see that one coming in real one has a real problem with how to read narrative, I think. Mm. But it... Just to backtrack, because I'd, I'd forgotten the original question, because your, uh, your, 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 your monologue was quite <laughs> quite lengthy. Um, but I mean, if, if we're going to be really picky about originality, then there probably isn't room for an original idea for any film. I mean, every story has been told. There's only meant to be like a very finite number of stories which can be told. Of course. Um, so I, I think in terms of originality in horror cinema, it's, it's taking an idea which has been done, um, normally unconsciously, and then just presenting it in a different way or adding a different spin on it. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to imitate a film very deliberately so if I said I'm I'm just going to go and make a film which is my version of Halloween I think I think you almost need to take loads of different influences uh put them into that creative mixing part and then see what you you come out with and it, but also I mean unless it is a deliberate homage then don't make the nods towards them quite so blatant yeah, as I said, I don't think that I have a problem with you wanting to come up with homage to classic texts. I just think that you, if you're going to do it, you need to do it. You know, Rob Zombie has done exactly what you just said. He's taken all the old ideas and he's put a new and different spin on them. He's filtered them through his own personality. It's just that, unfortunately, the results have come out looking like a an animal <laughs> designed by a committee with too many legs, not enough heads, etc. Hmm. I, I mean, so sometimes it... It works. So one of the books which we recently reviewed on the This Is Horror podcast, although our listeners will not have heard that review yet because we'll be putting it out after this one. (laughs) So uh, spoiler following on from this alert for that podcast. So we reviewed Whitstable by Stephen Volk, which 
was a homage towards Peter Cushing, but that worked. Yeah. So, so there's an example of... It worked because Stephen Volk is a very good writer, and unfortunately this didn't work because Rob Zombie isn't a very good writer. Well, you, you said before, would, would Rob Zombie be better if he was just either another director or the writer? Well, I think he'd be much better off as a director. What do you th- what do you guys think? Do you think that Rob Zombie can write and direct movies? Um, not being so, <laughs> we've had this conversation in the past. Like, I never know who directs anything. Like, I recognize <laughs> the names that people talk about, but it never occurs to me to look into who directed a movie. But I will say, if he's written and directed all of his movies, it's been a it's been a downward spiral from the first two. So if he, I'm, I know, I believe he wrote House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects. I believe he was the director in both. I could be wrong. Um, very good for both of those. Um, I didn't bother with Halloween 2 because Halloween 1 was so bad. Um, so I would have to say that he started off really good. And, and you know, when you're talking about homages, obviously House of a Thousand Corpses is, is kind of a uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre reimagined for, for you know, the more modern era, I guess. Um, and I thought that that was done very well i really like that um but since then it's just let me put it this way at the rate of progression i'm likely not to go see the next rob zombie movie so it seemed like he started off well but if he continues on the path he's been on for his last three then yeah uh for my opinion and again not uh any level of expert as far as movies go but uh i'm gonna well, I've seen House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, and I think the strength there was just uh, his style of of kind of combining kind of a campy 70s throwback thing with just some really gruesome stuff um, and, you know, really creeping you out. So, like, it, that's the Rob Zombie style that I want to see in movies. So if he stuck with more, like, if there was more of that type of a feel in Lords of Salem, I think it would have been way better. Uh, and and if actually, <laughs> if he took the book that was novelized, the novelization of his movie, and adapted that into a movie and stayed very faithful to that, I think the movie would have been incredible. Um, <laughs> because Brian Evanson made the story exactly what I would expect from a Rob Zombie movie, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you feel that he took the basics that Rob Zombie had done within the story and then actually crafted a proper narrative around that effectively? Yeah, it was incredible. The book is just incredible. Uh, it's got a lot more depth to it, a lot more of a cohesive uh, narrative, and it's really a lot uh, more gruesome and scary mm-hmm. by far. Oddly, I think the the two best scenes in the book um, weren't put in the movie. There's a there's a well a couple of scenes I guess tied into when when the Lord's um, song is first played, it, it uh, yeah. hypnotizes certain women um, who I'm assuming are all descendants of witches. Uh, in in you know they they never really address that on who these women are, but there are a couple of murder scenes um, in the book where they hear it on the radio and these the two particular women you follow through the course of this flip out and murder one murders her husband the other one murders her I think fiance boyfriend whatever he is. Jeez. I, I really like that, and it didn't make it into the movie. That's so strange, because I thought when that happened, when I heard the radio broadcast and it was kind of activating the women of the town, I thought that that would be what would happen next, and I was really surprised when it didn't. 
Yeah. So it's well, interesting yeah. that you say that that's in the novel. Yeah, and it's one of the strongest parts of the novel is to actually see these people completely transform and do horrible things that they otherwise wouldn't was um, really gave you know strength to what this uh, this record was doing. John, to give you a better idea, it's it's worse than that. It's a witch possesses them when they're listening to this, and not only do they mutilate their their significant others, but they mutilate themselves throughout the course. It's very yeah. dark. It's very disturbing, and it, Evanson wrote it just unbelievably. Well. Yeah. So it's as if they are trapped inside their own mind, watching what someone else is doing, and and completely uh, powerless to do anything about it. They're just possessed by something that's doing all these just wicked things. And um, they can't do anything about it, but they're witnessing everything. You see, that to me sounds like evidence that a novelist has come along and has tried to make sense of it and has put these <laughs> elements into it that would have been great if they'd been in the film as well. But he felt that he had to put them in the book as some kind of actual rational explainer. <laughs> that could very well be. There is another brief scene in the book that drove it, it yeah it's maddening it didn't make it in you know in the whole throughout the course of heidi's week because this does take place over the course of a week i believe right like monday through friday yes. yeah yeah um, mm. she's got the tv playing on every night oh and yeah in, and in the book the tv and, and what's going on in the tv really plays into the story and there's a scene where she winds up kind of seeing an infomercial that that's i, I can't even explain it's one of the best scenes i think i've ever read in a book and it is uh, pictured it being Sid Haig, who oddly enough made a short appearance in this, but not in the role I wanted him in, which was mm. he's narrating as he's basically beating and torturing a man on television. So this cool. is, uh, you know, kind of like the dream sequences. This is what's coming out of her TV at her as she's falling asleep at night. And again, an yeah. opportunity for a scene that easily, easily would have been the best scene in the in the movie, if done even halfway right. Yeah. And it, it, it didn't make it either didn't make it to the final cut or just wasn't included at all. See, this is what I mean by the kind of superficiality that I'm talking about when it's all of that sounds, what you've just said, sounds infinitely more interesting than what I watched. Yeah, I knew that once we got into the differences between the book and the movie, we were just going to be strengthening your argument. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it, it's funny, isn't it, that the film actually came first? Because normally... If you've got a film which seems almost like a diet version of the novel, it's it's the other way around. It's because you've got the novel which was written originally, and then they've tried to put all the key points into that film, which of course is incredibly difficult to pack, let's say, three or four hundred pages into a couple of hours. Um, but but for it to originally be a film you would assume that the narrative would be tight and would make sense. And I think so. We've, we've spoken about the women who were possessed as witches. That's not even... Possessed by witches, sorry. Mm. Um, that's not That's not really even implied in the film uh, that, that the, town, the town's women... Are, are being possessed by witches not until the end at least well we see the scene where the music is played on the radio and then they're dropping tools and yeah. kind of acting like activated zombies but that then is completely dropped isn't it it's just left hanging in midair and I mean it, this brings us to a point 
which I know John has wanted to raise. And so this is all happening in Salem. Where are the people of Salem apart from the main characters? We don't really see anyone. This seems to me to be a budgetary thing. It's like, how how little can we spend on this film, considering that we want to spend the majority of it on the special effects? So, you know, to be honest, there's how many how many inhabitants of Salem are there? There's about a dozen. I mean, they're comfortably outnumbered by a bunch of dead hags. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, hmm. I, um, the only thing I can think, and I'm going to try to defend this, just as devil's advocate, is that I think I think that. Um, it, it, let's look at it the other way. Let's talk about this film like it was brilliant and try to give it credit. Okay. Heidi's, Heidi's um, issues throughout the the movie, in, in my opinion, and, and even in the book, is you know she's very very lonely. Um, even throughout the book, which had unlimited budget, obviously for for you know for storytelling, her only friends, the only people she comes into contact with, are the landlady, who's who's a witch, um, and her. Her two call three cohorts, four cohorts total at the radio station. There's a radio station manager that plays a small part. That's it. Everything else is kind of her hanging out in her apartment, her hanging out with her dog. You know, there's an ex-boyfriend that's mentioned, um, you know, but there's she has no contact with anybody other than the people she works with. So if you look at it from the loneliness standpoint, taking out, you can go one of two ways. You can either have crowds of people that she has no contact with to kind of really display that loneliness or you can picture her alone if it's walking her dog, if it's you know going to work, if it's sitting in her apartment. So as devil's advocate, if you really want to dig deep for, and I know this isn't what he was trying to do because the movie's very transparent, but <laughs> I was going to say oh. there would be one way to explain away the fact that, yeah, nobody else lives in Salem except the witches, the guy who wrote the book on the witches, and the people who work at the radio station. Well, the other thing, too, I don't know how, if I'm sure you guys, did you watch through as the credits were rolling and stuff? Because yeah. there was yeah. there was kind of a news story kind of thing going on where um, at least what I got from that was that aside from the key players in this whole witch situation, which all right, so to to lay to lay the basic history out, um, the Hawthorne guy back in you know the actual during the Salem witch trials uh, burned these witches, and as they were dying, they they cursed. Um, the ancestors of of these the people that that killed them, and that um, so and that's kind of that's revealed in this really crappy scene between uh, the historian and a guy who wrote a book. Um, it's super <laughs> like that. You know what I'm talking about, where the two mm -hmm. authors are talking, and yeah. it's like just very bullshit exposition. Um, it is. It is entirely <laughs> bullshit. Actually, I mean, bearing in mind, just to interrupt you very briefly, what you've got in this scene is you've got a guy who's gone on the radio station as an expert author on the Salem Witch Trials and has written a fucking book about the Salem Witch Trials who didn't know the chief text about the Salem Witch Trials that was written by a guy who lives in Salem. For <laughs> That's true. <laughs> when you put it that way. All right. <laughs> um, so anyway, I guess my point is... Uh, <laughs> At the end, there's a essentially like a news, like a radio news thing or, or something going on saying that there was a bunch of bodies found in what appeared to be a mass suicide and everybody is shocked. So it seems like aside from the people who are personally affected via the radio station uh, of this music playing, no one knew anything was going on. So I guess that your question of where is the rest of Salem is that they just didn't have any idea that something was happening is what that's my, what my impression was. 
Does that stick with you, John? Is probably, yeah, probably not, but it's a good attempt. <laughs> <laughs> well, so sometimes you have to play devil's advocate, but yeah, it's... Can I ask you guys, all right, so let's talk about visuals other than, like, the montage scene. I thought that um, that there was some really creepy and really uncomfortable stuff, which I was a little impressed with. Um, it, at two or three points during the movie there are uh, groups of um, naked women of varying ages. This would be the, the coven of nine witches or whatever it is that, 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 that you know, are, are coming back and possessing other people, whatever it is. Um, that was really, really uncomfortable to watch. It, from a, a, I don't want to say from a <laughs> horror standpoint, but it, it did. It made me kind of squirm in my seat a little bit and, you know, not look away, but the thought was, I kind of want the scene to be over. What, do you, what did you guys think about some of the visual cues that, that he threw in? I mean, I, I was largely unaffected by that particular scene. I didn't, I don't know, like we, we've seen that kind of thing before, haven't we? In different, it, it didn't seem particularly original and I was largely unaffected by it. Like I said before, I thought that that was one of the strongest scenes in the film and it was something that made me think that maybe it would have some substance to go along with the style because it certainly does have some style. You know, I don't have a problem with the guy has got some kind of visual flair and some good visual imagination. He's good with imagery. Um, it's just that, you know, I, in in the film studies debate, I've had this argument many, many times and I've defended a lot of films, a lot of directors, a lot of filmmakers on the style versus substance debate when, you know, people accuse people, uh, filmmakers of being all style and no substance. And I'm saying, well, actually, if you look at closer at these guys, the style is the substance in many cases, but uh, I think that this this is an example where I can certainly identify and discern style, but I just can't identify or discern substance. Rob, opinions? Uh, I didn't care. I knew there was. I mean, one, <laughs> I <did>. whenever <laughs> there's witches involved, I'm assuming there's going to be some ugly naked people. That's just I, I just assume that was part of the ride. Fair enough. I'll be, I'll be the one disturbed by groups of naked women. <laughs> well, I remember thinking when I was watching it, not only that I was quite enjoying the scene because it was, it didn't feel creepy so much as just, you know, I, I thought it was quite brave in actual fact to, to begin the movie like that. And it's the sort of thing that somebody like Cronenberg might have done in his heyday if he was into making movies about the Salem witch hunts. But I just thought, you know, maybe this isn't going go to go play down so well with the feminist lobby, you know? <laughs> <laughs> i.e. The, the idea that, that all of the, the every other text that's been written or filmed about Salem puts the idea of the Salem witch trials down to mass hysteria and absolutely no substance to the idea that the that the women might have been witches, the ones that were accused of witchcraft, that were all obviously innocent of that, and it was just a completely paranoid system that found right. them guilty of saying. Right. And this takes the entirely opposite viewpoint that they were all guilty and they were all heinous witches who'd got this coven that they were trying to bring Satan back to life. I mean, what I said to you before when we talked about this was obviously you've got to take it as a fantasy narrative. So yeah, Rob Zombie definitely doesn't go out of his way to be historically accurate and within the context of a witch film... Yeah, all the witches were guilty as fuck. <laughs> and that's just what we've got to work with. Yeah, yeah, you guys, I just thought of something listening to this this last little portion. You know, this movie might have been served better if he was historically accurate. 
And you can still have all of the elements, but at the end, just kind of reveal that Heidi's just batshit crazy, that this is all going on in her head as, you know, drug delusions. And you could have so delivered the same film. Yeah, I think I think I, I felt the same. I thought that at some point I saw that there may be avenues of reading that you could read into it, that it was entirely her subjective experience and it was her hallucinations that we were going through and that it was her descent into insanity and madness. And I wish in many ways he'd put supporting things around that to hold that up. Or at least leave for the possibility that that was the case. Yeah. Yes. I agree. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he goes out of his way to have a news report at the end. <laughs> yeah. Validating that, that this did all happen. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, but even in that news report at the end, there's a bunch of dead people, but no one knows why or what happened. It's mm -hmm. just like a pile of dead people. That, and they even say an attempted or a mass suicide. Yes. So there is a little bit of vagueness, but it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't what it could have been, I guess. Agreed. So if, if Sherry Moon Zombie just went crazy and killed a bunch of people, and I'm now starting to, to talk myself into that, I'd like this movie far better. <laughs> wow. Or right. If they'd removed the news broadcast and they had just ended with Sherry Moon Zombie, a Christ-like martyr, and a pile of naked witches. On the neon cross. That, yeah, on the, that, that would have given at least more room for that ambiguous shit she was just completely nuts reading well i liked i liked you know what you were saying earlier about the, the the nation the notion that it was you know there was no people around because it was all her subjective loneliness and i thought they did do the existential angst thing quite well i think that she did look suitably vacuous throughout and that you know her descent into obviously we always knew once you've seen her being going to a recovery meeting and that she's uh you know we know that she's been an ex-user that she's gonna at some point in the movie she's going to start using again i kind of didn't quite dig the idea that in salem the only door that's got three painted skulls on it is the drug dealer's house i mean who lives here <laughs> a, 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 a vicar be a businessman or see a fucking drug dealer but you know so when when she does that as you said her performance as as a, a junkie was was particularly believable and it would have been very useful to then give us a kind of 50 50 on whether this was really happening or whether it was all just her subjective descent into madness so you mentioned the vicar there and one one of the scenes where i thought this better be a dream <laughs> or it's just like gone so out the window that i'm just gonna walk out <laughs> Which wouldn't have been walking very far because I was watching it in my living room. <laughs> but right. anyway, you could have jumped through the window. Yeah, I could have, could have ended it all. <laughs> but um, it it was well, what what I'm just gonna term the vicar blowjob scene, which is where where so she's in a a church. I don't know if she was asking for some sort of forgiveness. I can't really remember. But then all of a sudden, the vicar turns up and he's calling her a whore of Satan and she's going down on him. Um, and at that point, it wasn't clear whether this is a dream. And I thought, I, this is just ludicrous. This isn't plausible in any way. But then she woke up and it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, Wait, okay. Maybe, maybe, tr trouble girl. <laughs> maybe it's a cultural difference. That happens all the time in the United States. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, the genders are usually reversed. But... <laughs> <laughs> then it's, yeah, that's how we do it. <laughs> Not well, every, everything yeah, in the, just to clarify. 
everything that happens to Heidi in the film <laughs> is is delivered in a potential dream scene. So several times we see her wake up, exactly. and you don't know if it's going on in her head or or if it's going on, um, you know, through, actually through the course of her life. But I think that that's validated in the novel. Because I believe there's a portion where um, she has her dog tied up outside the church, and somebody else sees the dog. Rob, do you remember that scene? Yeah. Well, yeah. A little bit. Okay, so it is validated that she's at the church then, right? So her dream would have to be in the church. Yeah. She. Yeah. yeah. She. Yeah. Much like in the movie, she wakes mm-hmm. up. She oh, had, that's why she wakes up in the church. Though, she had she? fallen asleep mm-hmm. on the pe- like sitting in mm-hmm. a pew, and and uh, had the dream, but then woken up, and the priest said to her essentially what he said at the beginning of the dream and she freaked out and ran out well, the w- one thing that there isn't any of in the movie is is sex so she doesn't you know obviously the guy she works with at the radio station is uh, very much into her but she doesn't ever seem to have that reciprocal being into him and she doesn't exercise her sexuality and there are a number of times when people in the movie are, are, are told to you know kind of deal with the their uh, their innermost subconscious desires and particularly the desires that are between their legs etc and yet we never really see that coming out through the movie so i guess it's just another way of trying to put a sort of subconscious spin on it but that really kind of doesn't work i don't there was a humorous bit with herman whitey salvador where he's over at her house and she's like oh you can stay over on the couch and he's like what on the couch you know so i don't i don't we might get something between them and i think whitey thought there might be something as well but it was not to be guys let's be fair there was the one scene where that creepy half chicken person short thing <laughs> shoots his weird like two-pronged <laughs> penis at her and she's kind of you know jerking him off a little bit oh, that, that was... was what it was yeah I had no, I had no <laughs> clue what the fuck that was. I thought it was just a bunch of either entrails or t- intestines or tentacles or whatever the hell it was. That was that was his sexual apparatus, was it? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, or, either that or that's I, I have a weird mind. It's just how Rob reads everything. Guys. <laughs> like, oh, it must be a penis. No, that makes everything clear. The movie's a genius. Yeah, we, we don't get we don't get stuff like that in the UK. <laughs> Get to get out to Massachusetts and uh, expand your mind a little bit. Fair enough. So are we are we ready to kind of? Um, I, I know Rob and I will probably issue a number of stars to this movie. Um, well, we did you get as well to just go okay. with your system yeah. in in honor of our collaboration. Um, Rob, did you want to kick it off? <sighs> oh, all right, sure. <laughs> so. I'm not going to do a, a summary of the movie like I usually do, but I just want to say that I think that the thing, the biggest thing going against it, at least for me, is expectations going in. Expectations of a Rob Zombie film, expectations from the book, um, and then I guess John would say expectations of uh, a properly made movie. Um, Coherence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought, you know. It wasn't what I expected, and so I was a little bit let down, especially having read the book first. Um, I'm going to go with two stars. That's all I, I've been I've been wondering the same thing over the last couple of days, expectations. And, and I find that the higher my expectations are of something, the, the more likely it is to deliberately let me down. 
Um, I, I'm going to echo Robin two stars. If I hadn't read the book, maybe, maybe three. But yeah, there was just some things that, that they could. I, I now know what they could have done better because somebody did it. It's not just in my imagination that they could have done better. Someone sat down and wrote a better story. So I know it could have been better. It's two stars for the movie. I don't that it it was a flawed film. It was amongst his worst, unfortunately. Not not quite as bad as Halloween. I thought there were some enjoyable moments. Um and I thought as a homage, it it did work relatively well. But that being said, there were some major inconsistencies, particularly with plot logic it was too predictable at times and as john said i think it lacked coherence but i'm you know that being said i'm glad that i watched it and i would give it two and a half stars um. well i had no expectations going in and the film comfortably met that <laughs> so <laughs> it's a for that it gets so, three five stars, stars yeah. yeah five stars absolutely um <laughs> I think all of the film's reviews that I kind of started just going through to find out if I was in a minority of one on this, which I'm glad to find I'm not, um, all the positive things seemed to be, all the comments seemed to be about the imagery and the nightmarish part of it and the phantasmagorical and the surreal and the this and the that. So I think I'll give it two stars for visual interest and 0.5 of a star for um, screenwriting and plot. So, so is that, that a total sense. of 2.5, or do we no, average those two? If we, if we combine those, it's probably about, what, one and a half stars? <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> Interestingly enough, um, on IMDb, which is what I've had open this whole time, mostly to, when you guys speak of somebody as an actor, I have to actually go and look and see who they are. So um, 5.7 out of 10, which would be um, pretty close to what we gave, because that would break down to a, you know two and a half or so um, stars on a five-star system. Uh, the other uh, the other in the trivia section is a bunch of thing about the actors. But um, the interesting thing is that John Hawthorne, it was actually one of the people who presided over the Salem witch trials, which I thought was interesting until I realized that if you said, hey, name a guy from like the you know 1700s, I think John Hawthorne is probably the name I would spew out. All the names seem to be very, <laughs> very standard. You, you know what I mean? Even throughout the movie when they talked about people. None of the names were were a surprise. They were pretty standard fare. But yeah, John Hawthorne, real guy. So really, yep. Yeah. Is there a Heidi Hawthorne? Just, right um, I, well, I, you know, I was going to yeah. follow that to its logical thread. Is that there's some hottie with dreadlocks running around in Salem right now, <laughs> whose great 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 grandfather, um, you know, <laughs> road trip. <laughs> road trip. Hey guys, I thought what would be interesting as a qualifier, especially from from you guys, is maybe um, if you threw out you know just two or three of your your favorite horror movies, and it would give um, listeners, our listeners, more so a frame of reference, and you know how you felt about this movie. What is a really great horror movie? Oh, Jesus, so many. Um, for me, Dario Argento, Suspiria is right up there. Um, not so much in the way of coherence in that, but by God just all the visual flair that you would ever want and then some um, and a fantastic sense of dread and unease throughout it. The Exorcist you know you look at the opening sequence of The Exorcist as a 
<clears throat> a way of putting tension and dread and horror and fear together without actually showing anything. And then, you know, you force Rob Zombie to watch it 10,000 times, he might come out with a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Are you done? <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre original, Dawn of the Dead original, Halloween original. That'll do. So we have a film festival called Fright Fest over here. And my favourite film from last year's Fright Fest was called The Seasoning House. I don't think that's got a wide release yet, so I imagine that will be getting its full release either late this year or at some point next year, so look out for that one. If you want a classic, then Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I mean, that's a great example of like an a film which was originally a book but which has done something very original with the material um also in terms of asian cinema there's audition there's a tale of two sisters um and it, it's not quite horror but old boy and all of the lady vengeance films as well mm -hmm. um and then another film which i enjoyed from a couple of years ago it's about a real life serial killer and that was snowtown so yeah i would recommend all of those rob you got what a couple of your favorite horror films guys oh god livius you go <laughs> I, I get a lot of pushback on on this um uh, probably the Blair Witch Project was a movie that probably scared me the most. Huh. And I think it was, um, and I know there's, 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 you love it or you hate it. There is absolutely no in between with that movie. That movie really, really disturbed me. And I think it was the not seeing the, the villain and the creature. So that was probably the scariest movie I've seen. Um, in newer movies and not so much for, for, you know, that they frightened me. Um, a couple of years ago, I watched, uh, oh God, The Collector which surprised me. I thought that actually was done very well um, for being kind of a little bit of a saw ripoff, but that kind of trapped in the house with, with this nutcase um, played really well with me. And then uh, there was a movie a few years ago I stumbled on. And again, the, the thing with some of these movies, I had no expectations. I, I didn't even hear, you know, it's like you see a title and you go, okay, I'm going to rent this from the red box or the video store and um, was a dead girl, which was a, a great story about two kids who find a, a woman who, um, you can't be killed, whatever you want to call it, like a zombie type woman. Oh, and yeah. that was like a psych good psychological horror um, from the standpoint of what it does to these two kids who are very, very similar until they find this this woman that's obviously been alive for a long time and can't really be killed and how that changes them. You know, they go in two different directions. So I'd have to <laughs> say those are those are probably, you know, kind of a spattering of, of three different types of film that I really, really have enjoyed. Yeah, now I'm I'm familiar with Dead Girl, and <laughs> I, I think John may be able to guess <laughs> what direction one of the kids goes with that uh, undead young lady. <laughs> Jesus <Yeah>. Christ! <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird movie. I watched it on Livius's recommendation, and uh, yeah. yes, it was a weird movie. Rob, how about you? I you of, know. of the three horror films you've seen, which. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have a good answer, guys, to that at all. Um, I, I don't really know what to say. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I watch stuff and it really freaks me out, but I don't let it like resonate with me. I don't, you know, I just kind of like, 
it's more of a consumption and I forget it kind of thing. Um, but I guess what I was thinking while everybody was giving excellent answers that I was not going to be able to match is, I mean, what's the presence of horror in television? Because I, I think a lot of like people's attention now is going towards, you know, television and I don't know. What do you guys think? Anything, any potential in that arena? Um, I mean, I think there are quite a few television programs which have like horror crossover appeal. So you've got things like Dexter, which is obviously centered around a serial killer. So you can tenuously say there is a horror link there. The most obvious horror television program has to be American Horror Story, which has now had two seasons. Or The Walking Dead. Uh, yeah, The Walking Dead as well. Um, True Blood, the first season, started <laughs> off as, as as if, you know, this has got a little bit about it and then uh, rapidly plummeted is the best way to put it. Uh, but then you... We've recently seen the release of Hannibal. Uh, so I've only checked out the first episode of that so far. Um, and then there's another serial killer program called The Following, which I wasn't impressed with that. And then most recently in the UK, we had a three-part series. I think it was called In the Flesh, but... Mm -hmm. I I that's, may be wrong, but what? No, that's what that's it, correct. Okay, well it, then it. So this was about zombies who are being rehabilitated back into the community, and I thought that was quite an original take on it. Um, so that yeah, there are certainly quite a few uh, television series that if if you wouldn't say they're horror, you would say they would appeal to somebody who enjoys horror uh, another fantastic one being breaking bad yeah, exactly. which like it it might not even be horror but i'm not going to talk about television series and not get a reference into breaking <laughs> bad wow so there you go <laughs> breaking bad was definitely going to be my it depends on what you categorize as horror mm -hmm. um and because it certainly has plenty of horror sequences and horror moments in it ditto something like a game of thrones you know which is a, an adult fantasy that I kind of almost watched while dragged kicking and screaming towards and really got into. I thought it was extremely good, you know, mythical levels of nudity and shagging and <laughs> violence and limbs being lopped off, etc. And uh, Machiavellian plotting. And even though it was broadly fantasy, it still has plenty of horror elements to it. So it's depending on how wide you justify the term horror, I guess. Now, all right, so I'm glad I introduced the idea because there's a couple of shows that I personally like quite a lot. Um, I like American Horror Story, second season much more than the first, but um, it's nice to have something like that where you pretty much know that you're going to sit down for an hour and just like something is going to unsettle you. Um, Hannibal, actually, I've watched like the first four episodes and it's nice because it's essentially like a serial killer helping an FBI agent finds serial killers, but while you think he's probably a serial killer himself, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's gruesome. It's definitely more on the, on the disturbing, psychologically disturbing, you know, kind of side of things. Yeah, the following I, was shit though. 
Yeah, <laughs> agreed. <laughs> Sometimes I need to be reminded that I watch too much television, and in listening to you guys, I've seen every one of those shows except Hannibal. So I have you know four episodes on my DVR, and I just haven't gotten <laughs> around to it. Um, yeah, Hemlock Grove uh, on Netflix, and I don't know if that was released in the UK, was kind of touted as horror. Um, that's the most recent thing I watched. Eight of the twelve episodes last weekend. Uh, and, and it's interesting for me. I, I didn't I, I don't really have much to say about Hemlock Grove, except that I watched, you know, four episodes of Twin Peaks recently, which is something I didn't see in its first run. Um, and it reminded me very much of that with the real quirky characters. The other interesting thing about Hemlock Grove is that the cover is a, a werewolf with a, a, an arm coming out of its mouth like it's eating this mouth. And there's a werewolf. And you would think that this would be about a werewolf since there's a werewolf on the cover. And, you know, there's a werewolf in the story. Um, but the werewolf doesn't materialize as part of the story very often, which I found kind of weird. But it's very interesting to see that it took TV this long to come around to the thought of having horror shows. Because everything we talked about, Dexter probably, and, and True Blood for campy, goofy kind of horror, you know, those are four years old or whatever. But everything else that we've talked about is something from the last like season or two. So it's interesting yeah. to see that TV took that long to figure out that we can do horror and do it on television. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Twin Peaks because that's now, what, 23 years old or something? About that, yeah. And, uh, you know, Twin Peaks is oddly one of those strange narratives that it was supposed to be a kind of horror text. And then the horror was muted throughout and it was secondary to the kind of surreal and mad you know, imaginative leap styles of narrative. But then, of course, it kind of became more horror because the Fox execs asked Lynch, well, they, they, they told Lynch, you know, so somebody killed Laura Palmer. Who was it? And he said, I don't fucking know. <laughs> and so they said, well, you know, hang on, isn't that the kind of point of all of this? And he's saying, well, no, because I'm just making this abstract show and you liked it for abst its abstraction, didn't you? And they're going, no, we kind of thought that you knew who killed Laura Palmer and we want to find out. So they made him aware in no uncertain terms that he had to actually come up with somebody who killed Laura Palmer. And it was one day when he was kind of uh, on set and his wardrobe master was on set, um, crouching down, um, either wardrobe master or set designer, I can't remember. And uh, he was crouching down he, and Lynch just looked at him and went, hold it. And then Bob was born. <laughs> and that was the guy who played him. <laughs> so Lynch made up the killer of Laura Palmer on the spot just through because he had to at one point. And that's, of course, the, where the real horror elements kicked in. And it became the central feature of, of the spin-off movie Twin Peaks Far Walk With Me, which was one of my, I think, is a, a fantastically underrated horror film. I think it's brilliant, brilliant movie. See, that just that's that bothers me because all right, so I was a big fan of Lost. And when it occurred to people, you know, two and a half seasons in, that those guys also had no idea how the show was yeah. going to end. See, in my mind, I get totally sucked into these things. Like, I, I watch a lot of Doctor Who, and I can't watch any of the specials where they talk to the actors because to me, they're not actors. That's the Doctor yeah. and his companion. So I, I get, I take these things very personally. Like, what <laughs> the fuck do you mean he didn't know? Like, that's the first scene is the girl's dead, right? Twin Peaks. Yeah. I watched like four episodes. Yeah. That's what do you mean he didn't know right away like that? I find that offensive and that like somehow that. lessens it lessens my enjoyment of a film to think really? 
It, then, he doesn't. This guy doesn't think like that. This is a man who who actually met Billy Wilder, who was one of his all-time heroes, and he met Billy Wilder at a party, and he was talking to him as a complete fanboy about Sunset Boulevard, and Billy Wilder happened to drop the snippet of information that he filmed Sunset Boulevard in a mansion that wasn't on Sunset Boulevard, and Lynch went fucking mental at it. So of course See, it was awesome. on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> if we saw it there in the movie, it was obviously on Sunset fucking Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, horror! <laughs> hey, we missed uh, we missed Bates Motel as a current horror series. True, I haven't seen that. That's got like eight episodes on the DVR now too. I'm gonna have to spend a weekend catching up on my horror TV. Is it worth it? I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, it's mixed mixed reviews, but it's a love it hate love it or hate it situation is what I've seen from. I try not to read reviews because I I, I pers- as terrible as we are on the show about giving away spoilers, I hate spoilers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, 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 I'll like read I'll read the heading of the review just to get an idea of what the person thought because anything in that text below could spoil something for me. Well, I mean, quite often you'll see the synopsis of a movie and it tells you half the fucking plot anyway, so... Yeah. You know, the synopsis is a spoiler. Absolutely. We had, um, back in the 90s, we had, when when television was still mostly terrestrial, we had four TV channels in the UK, believe it or not, and we had and the fifth terrestrial channel came along called Channel 5, and one of the first films that they showed on Channel 5 was the original Planet of the Apes. And in the trailer for the original Planet of the Apes, they had the final shot. <laughs> Which kind of is the biggest right. reveal of any movie ever. <laughs> and they had, the, they had the shot in the film, in the trailer for the film. So it's like, okay, well, once you go there, then I think everything's up for grabs. Hmm. Clever. If we're going to talk about television and genre and we're going to go back to Twin Peaks, then I think one of the original genre shows was The Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Or The Outer Limits. Yeah. yeah. All brilliant. Still have all of them on DVD, still watch them regularly. See, that's how I spend every New Year's Eve, is I watch There's a Twilight Zone marathon on the, the, sci- the sci-fi channel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and every year, like six, seven, <laughs> eight episodes, um, and that's, that's what I do. Um, it's interesting you guys say that because I, I made the faux pas of saying it took TV this long. So TV figured it out in the 60s yeah. uh, and then managed to to lose that thread that you could do horror on television. Because the Twilight Zone, now that you say, is probably the most horror television. I mean, I know it's kind of had a sci-fi twist to it, but that probably was the most horror-like show I, uh, on television. Maybe because I absorbed them all when I was a small child and they scared the crap out of me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so we went there as television, and then we reverted back Retreated. to not touching. Yeah, yeah very yeah. interesting. There's certainly been a revival of horror on television at the moment, and I'd I'd say probably the two reasons would be the success of Dexter and The Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, don't forget that you know we had uh, in the '90s we had when television was pretty much in the early 90s in a huge slump that nobody could kind of reinvent it at all. Nobody was bringing any new ideas to the table. One of the most underrated shows, in, even in horror terms, I would say, would be The X-Files. So not only did you have The X-Files, which was on the face of it, pretty straightforward science fiction, government conspiracy, etc., etc., but then that spawned Millennium, which I think is another hugely underrated slice of horror TV. And I don't think that 
that Chris Carter would have been able to get Millennium off the ground because it was so downbeat and so gloomy, and the first episodes in particular were so gruesome. Um, if he hadn't already been riding on the massive success of the coattails of the X-Files, they just wouldn't have greenlit that series at all. See, oddly enough, I uh, I never watched Millennium, but I was an X-Files fan and, and never crossed over to Millennium. I, I mean, I think I watched the first episode, and I think it just didn't, didn't connect for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Rob's like X-Files. What the hell is X-Files? Yeah. <laughs> is that the one with the guy from Californication? Exactly. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I never, I always, I thought he would always be Fox Mulder, and now I can't think of him as anything but Hank Moody. Yeah, that's true. M- much like William Shatner as Captain Kirk, and then going on to do Denny Crane in Boston Legal. Someone yeah. he thought was iconic and can totally change, you know, how you think about him as a as an actor. When you get to the second season of Twin Peaks, you'll see David Duchovny, who played Fox Mulder, as a transvestite. Oh, my I'm dreams, in. My dreams have <laughs> come true. It's what I've always wanted to see. <laughs> I've seen it so many times in my mind. I'm, you know, <laughs> expectations. He can't live up to what. Oh I'm yeah, thinking. we're back to expectations now. Oh. <laughs> All right, guys. I think we need to find a way to. To, to wrap ourselves up out of this. Well, I don't, I don't think there's any way you can go from David Duchovny as a transvestite. I mean, is, is that not the perfect note to end on? I think it must be, really. Considering <laughs> <laughs> for the last half hour, yeah. we've just riffed on horror films and horror telly. So that's, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's there. probably the subject of uh, another and podcast. It, I mean, it, that's the image that we want to, to leave the listeners <laughs> with. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much for for doing this with us. It's been a, it's been a great time getting uh, getting some expert opinions um, versus our very amateur opinions on this film. Yeah, thank thank Nonsense. you very thank much you for having us. <laughs> thank you for indulging us. <laughs> yeah, well, for forcing you, right? We didn't give you a choice. Yeah. Well, you you did make quite quite the announcement on the podcast, <laughs> like they will be <laughs> recorded. <laughs> okay, and that's that. <laughs> it worked. It worked. Yeah, no, it did. It was a fait accompli, and it worked. So yeah. <laughs> cool. You guys, good. guys, you take care, and we'll speak soon. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. Okay, so there you have it, our first crossover. First crossover, I'm saying that as if we've planned others, but we haven't, but our first crossover episode with This Is Horror, talking about the movie Lords of Salem. What do you think about that? Dude, those guys know so much more than us. God, I felt like I was a fourth grader. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking um, that it was pretty obvious throughout this that like they have a a, a podcast called This Is Horror for a reason because it was obvious that when it came to talking about horror, they were the experts. But we really shone through when it was uh, came time to talk about the book side. So it's nice that we're, our podcast is called Booked. I think it worked out pretty well. I got to tell you, I now have um, probably five or six movies that I need to watch based on the recommendations from those guys. Um, they're also going to be broadcasting that same episode, but I strongly encourage you, if you have any kind of inkling towards horror, that's uh, I've listened to quite a few of their episodes now. Um, that's the type of in-depth look you're going to get at things. It's almost uh, it's almost scholarly in a way. So you definitely got to go to This Is Horror, uh, the actual URL, because they're not here uh, in the U.S., is www.thisishorror.co.uk, um, and you want to give those guys a listen. Yeah, definitely give them some love. Um, I like how you said that you had uh, 
you walked away with uh, several recommendations of movies you're going to watch. I'm wondering if they walked away with any things they're going to do because of our recommendations. <laughs> they were like, this is why we don't live in the United States. <laughs> These guys don't know what they're talking about. They're barely you know, awake. So I, I tried to throw out some some Doctor Who and get some love for the Doctor Who, you know, show my support. <laughs> Although I have to say, I like the moment where um, you knew about a, a BBC show more than they did. Yeah, I um I watched the first. There's it's a three part miniseries. I watched uh, the first part and maybe half of the second one. It's not available. It will be available shortly. I actually just saw something. BBC America is going to be putting it out here. And yes, yes, I did go to the internet to get it. Because you know what? Fuck the BBC for taking so long to get shit over to us. That's all I'm saying. There you go. Hey, one thing I do want to say is, um, even though our content is going to be 90% similar, um, check out their episode too, because just like we had our own intro and outro, they're going to have a little bit of their own flavor at the beginning and end of their episode. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's worth it to check out exactly how much they make fun of us. And um, (laughs) basically, podcasts are all just predicated on downloads, so... Um, you know, we're, we're publishing this in two places, but really, you know, we thrive on people getting our content. So just because you listen to them here, doesn't mean that like they don't need, you know, people to, to give them attention as well. Hey, listen, go click a button, download their episode and listen. And I'm definitely going to listen mostly for what Rob says. I want to hear how they belittle us after we got off the podcast. How hard they laugh. It's just like four (laughs) solid minutes of laughter after they get off with us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which would be awesome i'd love it um uh you know those guys are cool we talked about doing more stuff with them i think that i think that that's certainly a possibility um lords of salem too that's what i'm thinking that's right more goats more sherry moon zombie return of the goats return of the goats that was the goat was really unsettling wasn't it, it was awesome or goat all right so for our next episode we're going to take a step away from the the horror um maybe i don't know um, Fish Bites Cop is coming up. Uh, very, very excited. Uh, David James Keaton um, collection. Um, that can be kind of horror, I think, right? Some horror there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, horribly good. <laughs> horribly good. Um, and and we are currently in talks with Rob Roberts to, uh, to have him on the podcast. See, that kind of worked, too. I said it on that episode. Oh, we really want to get Rob Roberts on. And it's happening. Yeah, so there you go. We just force people to do our podcast. It's awesome. We, all right, so uh, in uh, in a future episode, we're gonna have Sherry Moon Zombie on the podcast. Yes, that'll be our first video podcast, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> our only one. <laughs> all right, uh, I think that just about wraps it up for this first ever booked crossover podcast episode. Uh, until next time, I'm Rob Olson, and I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. 